Friends, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ today and every day. So let's go to God now in prayer and ask him for his help. Easter Sunday is no different in terms of what we're doing here today, and it's certainly no different in terms of our time in God's word. We need God's help. So let's ask him for that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, many of us with our hearts full as we are thinking perhaps especially about the resurrection of your son today. And at the same time, we acknowledge that we come to you today just like we do every Lord's Day, in desperate need of your grace and in desperate need of the work of your spirit. You are good and faithful and merciful. You are gracious. You always keep your promises. And we know that you hear our prayers, not because we deserve that, but because you have made us yours in your son. We pray that you would help us now as we look to your word. We pray that this time would be profitable. We pray that you would come and inhabit what we're doing by your spirit so that we might be blessed, so that we might be ministered to by you today from your word. Father, we pray that you would continue to sustain our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we pray for those who might not yet trust him, that you would even impart faith today. So we pray for these supernatural, extraordinary things to happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this will not come as a surprise to those of you who are regularly with us. If you're here with us today and you're not With us every Lord's Day, I want to extend a special word of welcome to you. It's wonderful to have you with us on this Easter Sunday. This Sunday is a special Sunday. There's no doubt about that. It's a special Sunday in the church's year, in the church's calendar. And in every good way that I could mean this and we could mean this here at this church, this is a very normal Lord's Day. We are doing today what we do every single Sunday. So when I say things like this, or I post something on social media about the fact that this is a normal Lord's Day, I in no way mean that we should play down Easter. Rather, we ought to play up the other 51. We should understand 52 weeks a year that we celebrate the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus. It's why we meet on Sunday. It's the day he got up from the dead. There's a reason that Christians have met on the Lord's day for 2,000 years. It's to celebrate the resurrection. So it's great that we take a day in the church's calendar to uniquely think about the resurrection and shame on us if this is somehow a unique thing that, oh, we're going to think about the work of Christ today. Or we're going to think about the person of Christ today. May that never be. Jesus and his work are the focus of what we do every week. And today's no different in that respect. So along those lines, I didn't and we didn't as pastors pick a special Easter text for me to preach. We've done that in the past. There's nothing wrong with preaching a resurrection sermon on Resurrection Day or preaching the Incarnation at Christmas. 
But I am going to continue on in the sermon series through 1 John. And kind of a cool providential thing, before the sermon series started, this is true of every book of the Bible that I preach through, I break the sermons down well in advance. So there were 14 sermons outlined for 1 John months before the series started. And then the preaching calendar just kind of happens how, that it, how it does in terms of the dates. We do it a quarter at a time. Well, the text for today's sermon has the theme that Jesus is life. We'll chalk that up to the providence of God. Although I, even if that was not the explicit theme of the text, which praise God that it is, it wouldn't matter because every passage of scripture should be preached in light of Jesus and his work. If that's not happening, so this is just one of those moments where I'm talking to you, CBC, as your pastor, as your brother in Christ. If every sermon, if every text is not preached in light of Jesus and his work, what you have heard is not a Christian sermon. What you have heard might be a motivational talk. It might be great advice. It might be true things about God and the world, but it is not a Christian sermon if it is not preached with Christ and his person and his work at the center. So when we come to this sermon time, whether that's on Easter Sunday or any other Sunday, we don't need a motivational talk. We don't need advice and tips. We come needing Christ. We come needing to hear God's word, which has Christ at its center. So with all that by way of introduction, happy Easter to you. I did wear a pink tie. I have to give the people something that they want, right? And I'm, I pray by God's grace, I'll be giving you something else that you desperately need, namely Jesus Christ crucified and raised for you. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to 1 John chapter 5. We are making our way toward the end of this letter. This is the 13th of 14 sermons in 1 John. Um, So it's kind of come and now it's leaving us uh, before too long. Next week will be the last one. We'll be looking today at verses 1 through 12 of the fifth chapter of 1 John. And now that you've had just a moment to flip there. I'm going to read God's word for us. The words to the sermon text will also be up on the screen, so avail yourselves of that if you need to. This is the word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word on Easter and always. So I want to preach this sermon in two parts that might be pretty obvious to you even looking at the passage. It breaks down pretty nicely into two large sections. So part one, we'll consider verses one through five together. And part two, we'll consider verses six through 12. And within each of those parts, there will be a a portion of time where we'll do some kind of pulling things together and some thinking and meditating together that I hope will be helpful for you. And I'll try to make that clear. So we'll begin with part one, and I'm entitling part one, A Description of the Redeemed. A Description of the Redeemed. Again, we'll be looking at verses one through five. Put your eyes on verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Straightforward statement. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that means the Son of God come in the flesh, to redeem, save God's people. He's the savior of the world, the propitiation, the satisfaction for the sins of God's people. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have been born of God. You have been born again. So quite simply, the first thing that we could say about the redeemed is that the redeemed believe Jesus is the Christ. We see also in the second half of verse one, you can put your eyes there. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So if you love the father, if you love God, then you love those who have been born of God. So that means that to love the father means you love the redeemed. And so we could simply say that a second thing that describes the redeemed is that the redeemed who love the Father love one another. So the redeemed believe that Jesus is the Christ, the redeemed love one another. None of these things should sound strange to us as we've made our way through this letter. John is quite clear, and over and over again, he gives us these truths about God's people. Verse two, put your eyes there. By this we know that we love the children of God. All right, so here is how our love for one another, here is how our love for the children of God, the other redeemed people shows up. Here's the evidence. What is it? We know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. So now John is making some connections. If you love God, you love one another. We've already seen that connection in the letter. If you love one another, you've been loving God. And Even in loving one another, that's going to show up in a unique way in obedience to God's commandments. We'll be thinking more about all of these things together in just a moment. Verse 3, let's just keep looking at what he says. He's going to ground what he's saying. The redeemed believe that Jesus is the Christ. The redeemed love each other. By this we know that we love each other when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God meaning our love to him here. This is our love to God that we keep his commandments. 
So how do we express love to God? There are several ways we can do that. One of the ways that we express love to God is to respond to God in obedience. That's all the apostle is saying. Our love to God is demonstrating in our genuine, imperfect, yet real and sincere, striving after obedience. This sounds just like Jesus in John's gospel. John chapter 14, he says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, this is how you'll demonstrate that in striving to keep my commandments. Then John adds this there at the end of verse three, and we're going to come back and think about this more in a minute. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's a great sentence. We're going to think about that and like why that's so. Let's move on to verse four. Let's put our eyes there. John is again, remember, the redeemed believe that Jesus is the Christ. The redeemed love each other. The love that we have for one another shows up in loving God and keeping God's commandments because we demonstrate that we love God through obedience because for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What's he saying? Everyone who's been born again overcomes the corruption and sin associated with the world. This is why obedience demonstrates love to God. This is why obedience to God's commands demonstrates the new birth. Because those who have been born of God overcome the world. Those who have been born of God overcome sin and corruption. Certainly not in their own strength. He's going to go ahead and make that clear. Look at the second half of the verse. It's not by our effort. It's not even by our good works that we overcome it. You see it. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. How is it that we overcome sin and corruption? Faith. It is by faith that we overcome those things. Again, we're going to think about this together in a moment. We're going to try to tie these first five verses together in just a minute. Put your eyes on verse five. John asks a rhetorical question. Who is it that overcomes the world? That is, again, the sin and corruption associated with the fallen world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Answer, no one. Only the people who believe that Jesus is the Christ are the ones who overcome the world. All right, so in trying to pull these five verses together, I'm going to give us two large observations. The second one will be, more substantial. As I've already said, nothing that has been said right here in chapter five, verses one through five should surprise us at all. This is incredibly consistent and in some ways a reiteration of many of the things that John has been writing for four chapters. So everybody's still in their chairs. Nobody's fallen down in the aisle. That's good to see. Now let's think more together about what John is saying and how these things are so. So first in trying to pull these verses together, let's just answer this question. What do the redeemed do? What do the children of God do? What do Christians do? We can say a few simple things. First, Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ and we trust him. Okay, we're good so far. Second, what else do Christians, the redeemed do? We love God. That's here. Thirdly, we keep God's commandments. Now, obviously, we're not going to obey them perfectly, but we will obey them really, and we will obey them sincerely. Fourthly, 
What do the redeemed do? We love one another. Again, imperfectly, but really, sincerely from the heart. And John tells us that keeping God's commands and loving one another are primary ways that we demonstrate our love to God. So the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, the second commandment that's like it. It's wonderful in God's world that we demonstrate that that first commandment is a reality in our lives. Love God in the ways that we love each other. John has already been very clear that if you don't love your brother who you, have not, who you do see, excuse me, how can you love God whom you don't see? If you don't love your brother, how do you love God? Answer, you're, you're not, you can't. And so we demonstrate this call to love each other is in no way in conflict with the call to love God. They go together. To love one another as the brothers and sisters redeemed by Jesus is a demonstration of our love to God. But now, secondly, in trying to pull these first five verses together, this is a massively important thing, principle that we would understand. I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to say this sentence twice. The keeping of God's commands and the loving of one another are accomplished through faith. Let me say that again. The keeping of God's commands and the loving of one another are accomplished through faith. I could add they are not accomplished apart from faith. I'm getting this primarily from the second half of verse 4, where John is making it clear that everyone who has been born of God keeps his commandments. Everyone who's been born of God loves the brothers because everybody who's been born of God overcomes sin and corruption, and they do that through faith. Do you see that? Verse 4. Okay. So just some thoughts here. First of all, let's lay this out. Sometimes we will say it this way, and the Bible occasionally will use this exact phrase, but we need to understand what we're saying. When we say that we are saved by faith, let's just be really clear. Faith in and of itself saves no one. The object of our faith saves us, Jesus. So faith doesn't save, Jesus saves. Faith is the means through which the merits of Christ are applied to us. And to have faith in Jesus most fundamentally means to trust him, that he is who he is, and that he did what he said he did to rest in Him, to abide, dwell in Him. That is what faith is at its most fundamental level. It is a looking away from not only my sin, but it's a looking away from my own goodness, my own works and all these things, and looking and casting myself completely upon Christ, who He is and what He's done, His work, in my place. That's faith. And it is Christ who saves. So it is this trusting and resting and abiding in Christ that drives and produces transformation in the Christian's life. It is resting and abiding and trusting in Jesus 
that drives transformation in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how this works in the church amongst the redeemed is that as we trust Christ and as we rely upon the Holy Spirit to work in us through the means that God has given us, we are changed. So our transformation is happening all the while we're looking to Christ. All the while, we're trusting in the Holy Spirit. We're doing things that seem incredibly ordinary like this. We show up here every week. We sit under the word of God read, the word of God preached. We partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We gather together as the church. We benefit from and profit from the fellowship of the saints. We sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We pray. And then we do some of these things in our personal lives, reading the word, prayer, singing, fellowship of the saints, right? During the week, Monday through Saturday. It is through those ordinary things that the Holy Spirit of God accomplishes extraordinary ends. He accomplishes transformation. He does the work of sanctification in us. That's how the apostle can say that this happens by faith not by works. We are transformed and conformed into the image of Christ by faith, most fundamentally. By faith, as we trust Christ, we love one another from the heart. And we obey God's commands from the heart as we trust Christ. So in other words, This is not, this whole sanctification process, this whole transformation process, the obedience of God's commandments, the loving of one another is not drudgery. It's something that in our inner man, the regenerate part of us that we want to do. It's something that we get to do. This is Romans 8, 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Praise God that that's true. Obedience from the heart, not some adherence to a written code. Those are two fundamentally different things. So this is why, again, that John can say in the verse 3, that God's commands are not burdensome. So when you read that, we tend to think of obedience like a trip to the dentist, right? That is not the case biblically. God's commands are not bad. They're good. Obedience to God's commands, it's not burdensome. It's a delight. It's joy. It's good. This is true. God's commands are not burdensome for at least two reasons. One reason is that because in Christ, born again by the Holy Spirit, we actually want to obey God now. So when God commands us to do these things, we look at that and say, yes, God, your law is good. I want to live like that. That's not a burden. We look at that and say, yes. But then secondly, It's true that God's commands are not burdensome because his law is a 
happy and joyful thing for the believer. The law of God, and by that I mean like the moral law in the Old Testament, think Ten Commandments, and I'm also talking about imperatives in the New Testament. So when I say law, I'm meaning imperatives. The law of God is now a happy and joyful thing for the Christian. Before we were in Christ, the law was terrible in that it damned us. It ruined us. We would look at the law and then look at ourselves and we are crushed by it. But in Christ, that's no longer the case. It doesn't threaten us or condemn us anymore. Jesus says in, John, or excuse me, in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he uses the word yoke, he's referring to the law. In his context, the yoke was a word used to describe the law. He's saying, come to me. My law, my yoke is not burdensome. Why? Because he has fulfilled it for us. He has kept it for us. We trust him and the burden has been lifted. It's no longer this thing that crushes us. It's now a joyful thing. Jesus offers rest. In him, we have been set free from bondage to the law and we have been set free unto righteousness. So righteousness is not something that we're chasing after now in order to earn anything. We're not trying to earn favor by pursuing righteousness. We have been counted righteous and now we pursue righteousness. We are now free to love God and obey God from the heart with a clear conscience. That second part's huge. We are now free to love and obey God from the heart with a clear conscience. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace because you're sinners. Peace because you have troubled consciences because you sin. This is what part of what it means that Christ has set us free. We can look at God's law and say it's good. It is my perfect and infallible guide for living. God's law tells me what pleases God. God's law tells me what is good for me. God's law tells us what's good for us and what will bring flourishing, not suffering. So before we move on to the second part of the sermon, I want to speak to something that produces I think confusion for many people and maybe at best a lot of tension for most everyone. And it's this reality that the redeemed, that's us, the church, right? The redeemed, we are on the one hand justified completely by Jesus through faith in him alone. And at the same time, the redeemed strive after obedience to God's commands and pursue good works. So we are not justified by anything we do. We're not justified or saved by our obedience. And yet the redeemed strive to obey. Those things put next to each other blow people's minds on the regular. And I want us to think about that for just a moment. Salvation is completely in Christ, not in us. Completely by grace and not merit. 
completely by faith and not works, and yet the redeemed are to pursue obedience. Help me, brother. Help me think about that. Biblically, you see, there's zero tension there. We feel tension. The reason that we feel tension and the reason that we feel confusion, like there's some sort of conflict between justification by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and obey God's commands, is because legality, a legal spirit, is so ingrained in our fallen nature. The legal spirit, let me try to explain what I mean, has two basic categories as far as motivation to obey. This is the legal spirit. Two reasons you would obey. One, fear of punishment. Okay, I want to avoid punishment, and so I'll obey. Second reason, from a legal perspective, that you would obey is merit. I earn something. In our fallen nature, in our basically inner legalists, which we all are, that's all we can see. I either obey because I'm afraid of punishment or I obey because I'm going to earn something. So what does that produce? It produces one of two alternatives. The legal spirit in fallen man results in one of two alternatives. First, the dynamics of obedience to escape punishment or obedience for merit are maintained and you get legalism. Do this and do this well enough and you'll earn salvation or do this well enough so that you won't be punished. Legalism, obedience for merit, obedience to escape hell. The other alternative, though, is the opposite side of the same coin. It's where the dynamics of obedience to escape punishment or for merit are removed. And that part, at least, is right. But then, at that point, when those things are removed, fear of punishment, merit, gone, the legal spirit looks around and says, obedience doesn't matter now. Obedience doesn't matter now because fear of punishment's gone, merit is gone, and that results in antinomianism, lawlessness. So it's important that we would understand this. Legalism and antinomianism against the law, lawlessness, come from the same place. They come from a legalistic spirit. Antinomians are simply legalists who look around and see no reason for obedience. Neither are the biblical pattern. Both are wrong. So here it is. We are perfectly and completely justified in Christ Jesus by grace, through faith, apart from works. Full stop. Full stop. If a good work, I don't care what work it is, is ever put next to Christ and his work as part of our justification, that's heresy. It's false teaching. We can go to Rome and the Roman Catholic Church or somewhere else, but it's not Protestant. And at the same time, we pursue good works and we strive to keep God's commands. It's what we do. What's our motivation then for obedience? There are a lot of them. 
I'm going to name some. Security. I'm safe in Christ. I want to obey. Safety, as I've already said. Assurance. I know that I know that I know that God has me. That I am good with Him in Jesus. That Christ will never let me go. I know that I'm going to endure to the end. I know that I'm going to be with God forever. I want to obey and keep His commands. Peace with God. He's no longer my judge. He's now my father. It used to be a relationship when I thought of God, I was afraid. Not now. I have peace with him. I want to obey. I want to love my brothers and sisters. Another motivation is delight. Keeping God's commands brings joy. Not because we think we're earning something. Not because we think we're escaping punishment. But because we genuinely love God and want to do what honors him. We're motivated, as I've already alluded to, by affection and love toward God. We're also motivated by gratitude. Jesus, thank you. We sung it this morning. That that song captures it beautifully. I was your enemy. Now I'm seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. I want to obey. I want to love my brothers and sisters who, like me, were enemies and are now seated with me at the table. And ultimately, here's the kicker. We will pursue, like definitely. There's no jeopardy. There's no doubt here. The redeemed will pursue obedience and good works because the Holy Spirit in us will see to that. No exceptions. It's not you, fundamentally. You'll participate. I will participate. Just like we participate in life by being alive. The Holy Spirit in us drives this. He sanctifies. So all that by way of a description of the redeemed and even thinking together about how John can say God's commands aren't burdensome, how he can say we're saved completely by faith in Christ. Faith is the means by which we overcome the world and we keep God's commands. These things are not at odds with each other. I hope that's been helpful to you. But now let's move on to part two. I'm looking at the timer. The only thing that might be special about this Resurrection Day sermon is its length. So we'll, uh, we'll hope that that isn't true. I'm going to keep trucking here. And yes, we'll pray for the people working in childcare. Part two, we'll put it under this heading. The testimony about Jesus. So if the first part one was a description of the redeemed, part two is the testimony about Jesus. Jesus, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. Put your eyes on verse 6. Verses 6 through 8, let's just go ahead and say, um, I imagine if you had questions looking at the text this week, you're probably like, brother, help me understand verses 6 through 8. Help me to understand what in the world the apostle's talking about. I'm going to try. I'm going to lay out my exposition. You have your Bibles in front of you. Let's look at the text together. This is he who came by the water, or excuse me, by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. All right, stop. Let's talk about that for a minute. There is some division amongst how people have seen this through church history, but I would count myself amongst the number who would see the water here as a reference to the baptism of the Lord Jesus. So I I see he came by water, 
referring to his baptism. So from the perspective of redemptive history, the baptism of John the Baptist, which is who Jesus was baptized by. John, you realize, was essentially the last Old Covenant, Old Testament prophet coming before the Messiah. So his baptism was a type of ceremonial cleansing that was instituted under the Mosaic Law. It was a washing. So Jesus, in being baptized by John, you recall his words in like Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, where John objects, like, I'm, I shouldn't baptize you, bro. Like, you, you should be baptizing me because John realizes who Jesus is. And Jesus says, it's appropriate that we do this so that we will fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus, in submitting to the baptism of John, that ceremonial cleansing instituted under the Mosaic law, was keeping and fulfilling the law. Not so much for his own sake, but for the sake of all of us. He fulfilled the law. So he came by water, baptism. But he didn't just come by water. John tells us that. He also came by the blood. The blood, most clearly, is a reference to his death on the cross, to his crucifixion, his execution. And again, from the perspective of redemptive history, if we think about, okay, he came by the water, which represents these kind of cleansing rituals underneath the Mosaic law, he now has come by the blood, which is representative of and fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Him coming by the blood is representative of the fact that he has fulfilled the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. The Passover happened because Christ was coming, not the other way around. It's not like, oh, well, the Passover happened and now we need to fulfill that. The Passover happened because Christ would fulfill it. When God would look on the blood, he would pass over the sins of his people. Well, that's exactly what we just sung. In that song, Jerusalem, it's a great song, right? He stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. Passover, boom, there it is. He also fulfilled the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Those who were with us on Friday night, we thought about this together. Where on that day, once a year, atonement was made for the people of God. Their sins were laid on one animal that was slaughtered as a guilt offering, a sin offering. But then their sins were also laid on another animal, the scapegoat that was sent out into the wilderness, representative of the fact that the Messiah would come and not only atone for the sins of God's people, he would take them away from God's people as far as the east is from the west. Christ came by the water and the blood. He fulfilled, in other words, the entire sacrificial system and the entire Mosaic law. If this is not clear enough already, I'm just going to give you a few bullet points that are in my notes. I wrote them. I want to share. Here we go. For Jesus to come by the water and the blood means that he, one, fulfilled all righteousness for his people. Two, he cleansed his people of their sin. He washed them. He came by the water. Three, he atoned for the sins of his people. He came by the blood, penalty paid. He satisfied the wrath of God against the sin of his people. Again, propitiation, he came by the blood. In other words, he came by the water and he came by the blood means he came to redeem you. He came to save you. And then John goes on there in verse six. And the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
It's kind of interesting words. Think back to chapter two. We learned there that to confess that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh is to know and confess the truth. Conversely, whoever denies that, John says, is a liar and has the spirit of Antichrist in him. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus who is the truth because the Holy Spirit is the truth. And I know that in our modern day vernacular, we say the truth like in this little sort of cute way, but this is how it's written. Definite article, the truth. That's who Jesus is and the Spirit testifies about him because he is also the truth. Pretty cool. So then we see in verses seven and eight that there are three who testify. Testify about Jesus, right? The Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify about the Lord Jesus and they agree. Simply means that the Holy Spirit, Christ's baptism, and his death, all of these things in fulfillment to the law, testify about Jesus Christ and who he is. And they agree in their testimony. You see, the plan of God was always for God the Son to come and mediate this covenant of redemption. The Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood bear witness to the fact that he came and did just that, and they agree. Verse 9. I hope that was helpful in some way, verses 6 through 8. Verse 9, pretty straightforward here. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. God is the one who has ultimately given witness. God himself has gotten into the stand and born witness, testified about Jesus. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. So not only whoever believes Jesus has believed the testimony, that's true, but whoever has believed in Jesus has this testimony, this witnessing of God within him or her. This is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that we've considered before. This is also like something that Paul writes in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit is real. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Conversely, on the flip side, whoever does not believe God doesn't believe the testimony about Jesus has made God a liar. This is why to not believe in Jesus is not a neutral position, right? Because sometimes people struggle with that. Well, it's just simply like unbelief. How is that hostile? Well, this is a reason. Unbelief is to make God a liar because he has said these things about Christ to not believe that says, yeah, God, you're not trustworthy. It's not a neutral place. So verses 11 and 12, what is the testimony? This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. What is the testimony about Christ, about Jesus? On the one hand, it's none other than the message that had been proclaimed to John's hearers about, which, about that which was from the beginning that he referenced in the first verse of this letter. But right here, he summarizes it in a very succinct way. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So a couple of big observations, and this is, again, how we're going to end our time together today. It may take us a few moments, but we are landing the plane. Big observation one from this testimony about Christ. Eternal life is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. You can see that in verse 11. God gave us eternal life. So in other words, it's given, it's not earned. It's not earned by us anyway. It is entirely good and right to understand our eternal life to have been earned by Jesus. We are not saved by our own merit. We're saved by his merit. We're not saved by our works. That's impossible. We're saved by his perfect works. He earned it. We are given it. God gives us eternal life in and through Christ received by faith. This is why the Apostle Paul famously writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, not merit. Faith, not works, right? And this is not your own doing. So you didn't produce it. Just be aware. It is the gift of God. There that is, that gift. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let anyone who boasts boast in this, right? That he understands and knows me. We boast in Christ alone in his life and death and resurrection. But second big observation from this testimony about Jesus is that eternal life is found in one person and one person only. And you know who that is. It's who we're celebrating today. It's who we celebrate every week. It's none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John in his gospel, in the very early verses of that, writes of Jesus that in him was life. There has always been life in the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. Life comes through the Son. In our text that we read this morning in the service, Jesus says to Martha, the sister of dead Lazarus, whom Jesus is going to raise, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that. I know that. He'll rise again on the last day when the resurrection happens. But then Christ says these words that are the most remarkable ones. It's like, okay, Martha, that's good that you understand that. But just to be clear, I'm the resurrection. Just to be clear, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, really. So I don't often have us flip to other passages, but I'm going to do that right now. And I have prepped Hannah for this, so I think the verses will be up on the screen. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Again, our sermon text today is perfect for what we're celebrating. Uniquely, Christ's resurrection. In him is life, right? 1 Corinthians 15. I want us to begin looking at verse 12. I'm just going to read some of these verses and comment. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Just a brief comment. Sometimes in the world we live in, the way that people want to talk about religion and the way that people want to talk about Christianity is interesting. We want to deny, not we the church, but the culture wants to deny the truth claims of the faith and yet find meaning in the faith. There was an article in the New York Times this week about, hey, what if, I mean, if Jesus were found, if his dead body was found tomorrow, would that make Christianity a lie? And the author's premise is, well, no, because there's all kinds of good things in Christianity. There's all kinds of good value in faith and love and joy and all these things to which you should be like in your mind and heart like, ah, the answer to that question, if Jesus' body were found tomorrow, is Christianity a lie? You better believe it is. It is the greatest lie in history if his body were found tomorrow. This is a big deal. Because Christianity, what makes it unique is not its morality. It's not some moral code for living. It's Christ. It's redemption. It's the fact that Jesus came and lived and died and got up again. That's what Christianity is. God's plan of redemption accomplished by Christ. If that's not true, who gives a rip about the morality? It matters for nothing. So, yeah, like own this. If Christ is still dead, you are a fool. You should be pitied above all people, and so should I for crying out loud, for giving my life to this. If Christ is dead, like you are a fool and you are wasting your time, leave. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and God's people say, amen. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For all right, Now here's some cool stuff. And we're always talking about like these covenants and like covenant of works with Adam and covenant of grace accomplished by Christ. All right, look at this. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So those who belong to Christ modifies that all shall be made alive, right? All doesn't mean all. All means all who belong to Christ, just to be clear. So you're in one of two places. You're in Adam, dead, or you're in Christ. Resurrection awaits you. To be in Adam is to not have life. Just like John says in our text, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You're in Adam, you're dead. But if you're in Christ, whoever has the son has life. It's because of our union with Christ through faith that we will be resurrected. 
It's all accomplished ultimately by Christ. That's why he can say, I am the resurrection. Because the resurrection happens only through me. Only through union to me will any human being ever get up from the dead and live unto righteousness with God forever. It's the only way. I am the resurrection and I am the life. We're going to move over in 1 Corinthians 15 very briefly to verse 49. Verse 49. Again, you're in Adam or you're in Christ, right? Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so shall also we bear the image of the man of heaven. Means we were in Adam. From dust we came. We are now in Christ. We'll be raised imperishable. Verse 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Meaning we will not all physically die, right? But we will all be changed, whether we are dead when Christ returns or whether we're still living when Christ returns. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So we're talking end of history here. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in the prophet Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. Praise God. O death, as Hosea wrote, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's gone. The last and greatest enemy is death. Conquered by Christ when he took his life up again on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. The sting of death is sin, Paul writes, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So friends, we come here today, like we do every Sunday, to celebrate Jesus and what he has accomplished. We come here to look to Him. We come here to worship Him. We come here to rest in Him and trust in Him. Cast ourselves anew upon Him every Sunday. What are we coming for? We're coming for forgiveness because we sin. We're coming for righteousness because we don't have it on our own. We're coming for resurrection, for eternal life because we're perishing. And Jesus has secured all of those. Forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, life forever. He's done that. That work is over for all those who trust in him. And this is why we always reiterate the fact that the gospel is news. It's news. It's news to be heralded about something that happened, about someone who came, about work that was finished. And because the work is finished, our faith, unlike every other religion, is not primarily about what we have to do. It's about what someone else has done that we receive by faith. And then, yes, our lives are transformed. We are so prone 
when we think about our sin and our lives and eternity and all of these things and the righteousness and holiness of God and his law, we are so prone in our experience to think that Jesus is not enough. But he is enough. And that's true on Easter and it will be true on Tuesday and then on Thursday and then next Sunday and we'll celebrate it again. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. At least in my mind and heart, I have two maybe big things. Come to you in need of your grace and your righteousness and your mercy. So we pray for that. We come to you in praise because of your plan of redemption that you formulated before the world began that was fulfilled and accomplished by Jesus 2,000 years ago and is being applied to us even now. It's a remarkable thing. Lord Jesus, we give you praise that on Friday night you laid your life down and you said it's over. And on Sunday morning, you took your life up again. We give you praise that you live still, that you reign in heaven. We thank you that you intercede for us. You plead the merit of your blood for us now. And we rejoice at the truth that you're coming back for us. We give you praise that you are the resurrection and that you are the life. We pray, Lord, that you administer to us by your spirit as we come to the table as we partake in a very physical, tangible way, by faith in Christ, we will partake of what he has done for us. Reassure our hearts before you. We pray that you would continue to sustain our faith. Give us joy and peace and rest in your son today, we pray. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.